cleaning is an awful job. Wrong! Spring cleaning is an Ajax job. Good morning. How are you? All is well. Did anyone else walk outside today, see the sunshine, and think, God has not forsaken our land? Anybody have that thought? I mean, last weekend was awful. I was like, you got to be kidding me. It's the middle of April. So we've got a new campus in the works for Aruba. Stay tuned. Okay, just so maybe in like the middle of winter, we'll all just head there. But we are in week two of a series that we've called Spring Cleaning. And we began the series last or two weeks ago with a really interesting question. We'll put it up on the screen. It goes like this. Why doesn't everyone who follows Jesus end up looking more like Jesus? And you know what I'm, what I'm talking about here. We all have friends who have been journeying in faith after Jesus for a long time, and you can tell. They're patient. They're gentle. They're kind. They're generous. They're forgiving. And you hear stories about them earlier in their life, and it's almost like it's not the same person. And so if we're honest, we would say Jesus has made their life better and Jesus has made them better at life. This is a a great success story and those stories are all around us. However, we all also have friends and maybe you've journeyed with somebody for decades and attended even the same church with them and they've listened to the same talks, they've sung the same songs, they've sat in the same small groups, they've sort of gathered around the same ideas of what it means to follow Jesus and yet yet you, you look at their life and they don't look any more like Jesus than they did than they did decades ago. And so why is it that some people seem to grow more like Jesus over time while other people don't? It's a great question. And maybe you're here this morning, even for the first time, and, and you're thinking, man, I feel like my faith is kind of stalled. And, and so I'm, I'm curious where we go from here. Well, the series Spring Cleaning is my attempt to begin to answer that question. Why doesn't everyone who follows Jesus end up looking more like Jesus? And I'm convinced after almost 20 years working as a pastor that the reason some grow and some don't has everything to do with something the Bible calls the heart. Now, this isn't the physical heart that plumps blood through your body. This is that invisible, intangible place that's right at the center of who you are. It's from your heart that you live. It's from your heart that you lust. It's from your heart that you love. It's from your heart that you make decisions. It's like the emotional center of your life. And it's a really big deal that we learn to keep it healthy and to keep our hearts clean. And and so, in fact, just let me show you one verse. It's uh, a thousand years before the time of Jesus. Israel was ruled by a king named Solomon. Uh, History records him as one of the wisest people who has ever lived, also one of the wealthiest people who's ever lived. Solomon was a collector of things and Solomon was a collector of wisdom. He believed that the greatest gift he could give to future generations was to compile the wisdom of his day. And he did, and that collection of wisdom made its way into the Old Testament of your Bible in a book called Proverbs. And in Proverbs, Paul, or, uh, Solomon rather, talks about all sorts of different things, what to do to live life well. And at one point he says this, and this is just fascinating. It's Proverbs 4, verse 23. He says, above all else, 
I mean, there are thousands of Proverbs. And Solomon says, if you want to know what needs to be the top priority in your life, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. It's guarding the heart that's the thing that matters most in life and the sort of life we get to experience. And that's pretty amazing because most of us would acknowledge that we were never trained to guard our hearts. I mean, growing up, we were taught to maybe monitor our behavior, monitor our words. Like we installed filters on things that we would do and not do and say and not say to stay out of trouble. This is, this is common in our culture. We learned what to say to get a date. We learned what to say to get another date, right? We learned what to say if the date was not going well and we wanted to abort mission, right? Uh, we learned what we could say to get a job. We learned what we could say to keep a job and we had a whole list of stuff we shouldn't say if we want to keep our job. We learned what to do to stay at peace with our parents and other authority figures in our life. We installed these, these filters on our behavior and, and our words, but no one ever taught us how to monitor our hearts. And it's a big deal because if we don't learn to monitor our hearts, then in moments where emotion seizes us, we sometimes do things or say things that we didn't really want to do or say, have you ever been there? Don't nudge the person next to you, right? You ever said something in the middle of a heated exchange and wanted to grab the words and pull them back because you thought, oh my goodness, how did that slip through the filter? I can't believe I did that. It was almost like something seized me what's the explanation for that? Solomon would say, Jesus would say, it came from your heart. And so this spring, as the weather finally turns uh, towards uh, warmth, we're going to take a run at four weeks and look at four enemies of the human heart, four things that if they get lodged in your heart can cause all sorts of damage, all sorts of complication for your key relationships and, and your life in general. We're looking at guilt and jealousy and anger and greed. And if you were with us a, a couple weeks ago, you know we started by looking at guilt, and we define guilt this way. Guilt is an emotional imbalance in which I believe I owe you. I hurt you. I took something from you, either physically or, or maybe I took a piece of your childhood. Somebody abandoned you, and, and now you say, well, they owe me or I owe them if you're the one that did the damage. Guilt says I owe you. It's a relational imbalance. It causes a lot of problems. We also talked about how confession breaks the power of guilt. And consequently, one of the healthiest things you could do if you want to learn to guard your heart is to get in a rhythm of confessing wrong when you do wrong. When you confess wrong when you do wrong, your heart remains clean. So that was two weeks ago. You can catch up on the podcast if you missed it. Today, we get to talk about jealousy. And jealousy is actually a bit tricky because we tend to think of jealousy as a struggle for children, right? We can all remember being five or eight or 10 years old and the kid down the street got a new bike, got a new video game console, got a puppy and you didn't ever get to have a puppy. And you're like, man, I am jealous. We think jealousy, we think kids. But then when we hit high school, we really don't want to admit jealousy or envy anymore, right? Because if people really were aware that we were jealous, they'd probably look at us and say, would you just grow up and get over it? So we tend to deny jealousy to the detriment of our hearts. But, but, but if we're honest, I think all of us deal with jealousy at one level or another. And I think I can prove it to you. It goes like this. Somewhere in your life, there's someone you don't like. And you don't really know why, because you've never really thought about it. It's like every time they come to mind, you're like, I don't like that person, right? I want to stay as far away as I can from that person. But if you were to push in and identify why, it's because 
they have something that you don't, that you want. They haven't worked as hard as you, but they've achieved more than you. And your emotional response is to dislike them, but in reality, you're jealous. And the closer you get to them, the worse you feel about yourself. So the natural human response to jealousy is to pull away from the people because we think if we move away from the people, then we'll move away from the problem. And, and we, when we move away, we just say things that really don't make any sense, but, but we say them at least to ourselves. We'll say, well, he's just too nice. Can you be too nice, right? I mean, that's just, that's just craziness. Or, or she's just too pretty. I mean, is there such a thing as, as too pretty? It, it doesn't even make sense. Or he's just... He's just too rich. I don't want to be near him. He's just too rich. I mean, he does things with his money that if I had that kind of money, I would never do, which of course we can't know because we don't get that money. And with that attitude, you probably never have that money. So there you go, right? Or maybe he's just, he's just too smart. And you're like, I just don't like him. And you say, well, what's really going on there? Well, the reality is that they reflect something that we aren't, that we want to be. That's jealousy in the adult world. Now, the other thing that we do with jealousy is that we tend to think, instead of confronting jealousy for what it is, we'll sort of couch it in fairness. We say to ourselves or to others, it's just not fair. It's just not fair that they have the thing that I want. It's just not fair. There is a huge inequity in the universe because I don't have this thing. My husband works just as hard as her husband does. Why do they get to live in that house? Or our kids study just as hard as their kids do. Why do their kids get to go to that college and our kids don't. It's just not fair. Or why do they get to go on that vacation? I've worked harder than they have over the past 12 months, and I've always wanted to go with to Toledo. And then they get to go. <laughs> no offense to Toledo, right? Yeah, right. It's just not fair. But, but the truth is, if you think about it, we don't really want fair. Because fair would be if overnight talent, beauty, health, and resources were distributed evenly worldwide. And if that were to happen, everyone here would take many steps backwards. So if I'm really honest, and I'm thinking about it, I really don't want fair. I want more, right? That's really what this is about. I don't want fair because I would, I would lose in that game, but I, I want more. I want to be where they are. I want to drive what they drive. I want to wear what they where? I mean, we cover it with fairness, but we really don't want fair. Here's the trick with jealousy. Um, we tend to think of jealousy as a circumstance issue, but jealousy isn't really a circumstance issue. Jealousy is a heart issue. And I know this because suddenly, if you were to get the eight-cylinder version that you really wanted, or you were to suddenly be able to fit in the smaller size dress, you would find that jealousy is still something you carry with you, your jealousy would just shift to something else. You'd look higher up the ladder and find someone who has more than you do up the ladder. And there's always someone higher up the ladder. There's always someone making more money or who has smarter kids or greater opportunities. So even if we were to pull ahead from where we are today, it wouldn't resolve the issue of jealousy because jealousy is an issue of the heart. Now, that's all stuff you already know. So let's, let's take it a level deeper. I want to show you what to do about the jealousy you carry because, friends, I have conquered it. I was just kidding. It was a joke. It didn't work at all. I'm not even going to do it second service. No. Jealousy is, and guarding of the heart is an ongoing thing. 
Uh, but, but our challenge with jealousy is we think that they are our problem. And as I mentioned, so we think if I get more distance from them, then I'll get more distance from my problem. But they are not your problem because they can't solve your problem. You think about it, like the only thing they can do to help you is to fail, right? If it's the car you're jealous of and you get to work on Monday and you hear that on Sunday afternoon they crashed their car and totaled it, and suddenly something in you thinks, well, I, we might need to have lunch now, right? And you're like, what? You didn't even like them because you were jealous of the car and now you're willing to move towards them. Or, or maybe you're at Grand Haven this summer, oh, just a moment and just glory in the thought of it, Right? And you're on the beach and you run into her and she doesn't look quite like she did last year, right? And you think, oh, is she, you know, maybe letting herself go and suddenly you, it's icky, but you feel better about you, right? I mean, we're just being honest here. And, and, and it's like you run into somebody and they've experienced some sort of loss and you just say, I'm just so sorry for your loss, but inside, like something is going, boy, I feel better all of a sudden, and then you get in the car and think, I am a sick individual. Like, where did this come from? It came from within. It came from your heart. It came from my heart. It came from a jealous heart. So in reality, the people who surface jealousy in us aren't our problem. Our problem is actually with God. And, and that may be a jump, jump for you, depending on where you are in, in your journey. But just, just hear me out. Jealousy, if, if guilt says, I owe you, Jealousy says God owes me. That's the relational imbalance that leads to jealousy. Uh, He owes me a different kind of body. He owes me more wealth or more opportunity or better parents or better kids or better vacations or a nicer car. It's like our our issue with jealousy has nothing to do with athletic people or skinny people, despite, you know, we think that's what it is, but it's not. we think God has ripped us off. But here's something to consider. Um, God has never claimed to be fair. And when you read the scriptures, that's not one of the things that God is a lot of things. He's, he's our loving father and he cares for us and he loves us more than we can imagine. But he's never really claimed to be fair. And, and that's by design. Because one of the things I'm convinced of is that God creates each life on purpose for a purpose. And you may have never heard that before, but, but God has a purpose and a design for your life. And in order for you to be able to pursue that purpose, he distributes gifts, talents, and skills in ways that empower us to reach our potential or empower us to live into our purpose. But see, your purpose isn't her purpose. And my purpose isn't his purpose. And we tend to think, no, 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 I don't want my purpose, whatever that is, I don't even know what it is. I want their purpose, right? Right? But that's not how it works. You were created, you were designed on purpose for a purpose. And when you obsess about being them or having what they have, then you can't be who God made you to be. So if we fail to come to peace with this reality, it can be a real challenge to our faith. I mean, it can cause us to stall in our faith because how can we follow a God who we believe has ripped us off. Well, it should not surprise us that we are not the first people to struggle with this reality. In fact, Jesus told a story to his first followers 2,000 years ago that helps us see this reality, this tension from God's perspective. Fortunately, one of the guys who was there the day Jesus told the story, a man named Matthew, later wrote down the story for us. 
Uh, but what I want to do is take you into the story Jesus tells and to draw out a few things. And then and at the end, we'll kind of circle back and talk about you and me and what we do with, with all of this. So uh, just to kind of climb into the story, um, I brought a picture of a vineyard and it's harvest time. And just imagine with me 2,000 years ago, a small village in northern Israel. It's time for the grapes to be harvested. And so what would happen 2,000 years ago is early in the morning, people who needed work would go to the center of town. And then the people who were looking to hire laborers would go to the center of town. They would connect first thing in the morning around 6 a.m. And just imagine with me, it's sort of getting to that spot in the year where the grapes are ready. And so the sun is just starting to rise and the roosters are crowing and the dogs are barking and the world is coming to life. And a landowner goes to the center of town looking to hire some people. And we'll pick it up in Matthew chapter 20, uh, starting in verse one. Jesus begins with these words. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is like, and this, just pause for a second. Jesus begins a lot of his parables with language like this. The kingdom of heaven is the place where everything is as God wants it to be. He says, if you want to know how God feels about things, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. You're like, wow, a denarius, that's really generous. How much is a denarius? I'm so glad you asked. Uh, This, friends, is a denarius coin from the first century. And a denarius was a common wage for a day laborer. So whatever you make uh, for a day, that's approximately what a denarius would have been in the first century for a day laborer. Um, And so everybody would have agreed that that is a fair thing to do when they go to work. Uh, They begin to harvest the grapes and the hours between 6 and 9 a.m., those are good hours to work, right? The sun has not come up fully. The morning dew has settled some of the dust. You really, you're fresh from your night's sleep. It's a good, good time to work. And and then after three hours, uh, the landowner disappears, the vineyard owner. Jesus continues, about the third hour, which would be 9 a.m., he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. So apparently there were some guys that didn't make it through the first round draft pick, or maybe they were a little late, you know, getting to the center of town. So they were just sort of waiting. And so he's told them, well, you also go work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. And at this point, approximately 25% of the workday has elapsed. The landowner promises to pay them, and notice the language, whatever is right. So he's being reasonable he's being fair. Uh, So far, so good, right? Uh, Continues, he went out again about the sixth hour, which would be noon, and the ninth hour, that would be 3 p.m., and did the same thing. So just imagine you're the 6 a.m. guys, right? And I mean, it's getting to three, and the heat of the day is happening, and the sun is beating down on you, and your hands are starting to get sore. And like another group of guys shows up, you know, if they were hired around 3, maybe 3.15, 3.20, and you have this thought like, well, nice of you to show, right? I'm so glad that you're fresh and relaxed from your nap, which, which apparently they weren't napping, they were still waiting, but, but nonetheless, you, you start to kind of cop an attitude because your hands are sore and they're fresh, and, and yet they come alongside you and pick the grapes. And by 5 p.m., um, you're cooked by the sun, your clothes are covered in dust, your hands are sore, And then the landowner does something I don't think anybody was expecting. I mean, this was already an unusual day. Check this out. About the 11th hour, he went out. So 12-hour workday, 11th hour, 5 o'clock, he went out and found still others standing around. And he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? 
And you're like, good question. He says, well, because no one has hired us, they answered. And just imagine these guys have families, they have kids, they're hungry, and they're just hoping to get something to bring home to their families. He said to them, well, you also go work in my vineyard. So they've been waiting all day. They get a chance to work just for an hour. And then the day comes to a close, 6 p.m., and this is where the story gets interesting. Uh, Jesus continues, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going to the first. So these are the guys that joined the crew at 5 p.m. And the sweaty, smelly guys are in the back. And they watch as the landowner does something incredible. Uh, The workers who were hired about the 11th hour came and each received a denarius. What was a denarius again? That was the the wage you got for working the whole day. And these guys get a denarius for working an hour. And I can imagine that they're pretty pumped. Would you agree? And they begin to talk about it. Man, this landowner, he's so generous. He's incredible. This guy's great. He should run for mayor. He takes care of people. We like him, right? And then, so they're excited. But then as you move back the line, I would argue that the guys, the farther back you go, the more excited they get, right? Because if they got a denarius, what are we going to get, right? Maybe we can finally buy the boat, right? Maybe we can take a vacation. This is going to be awesome. And they begin to celebrate and begin to spend the money that they don't have yet. Jesus continues. So when those who were hired first came, they expected to receive, and what's the key word? More, right? But each of them also received ominous music, a denarius. Houston, we have a problem, right? And, and it, it's, it's a charged moment because, I mean, they start talking like they're going to they're gonna create a union, right? Because this is an unfair labor practice. I mean, this cannot be tolerated. The first guys want to elect the guy for mayor. The other guys want to get him thrown out of town and his land seized. I mean, this is wrong. Jesus says, when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. Their words are not in the passage, but you can just feel it. It's not fair. And at this point, if I'm one of Jesus' followers, I'm like, this story is awful, Jesus. Where are you going with this, right? I mean, what in the world are you talking about? So Jesus continues. He said, but the landowner answered one of them. So one of the guys who's upset gets pulled aside. He says, "Um, friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Come back with me, 6 a.m. You're in the center of town. I come to the center of town. Want to work for a denarius? Yes, I want to work for a denarius. Give me a high five. You go and you work. All I'm doing is giving you what? I promise, didn't you agree to work for denarius? I didn't rip you off. I didn't scam you. And he says, take your pay and go. I want to give the men or the man who was hired the last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Like, dude, if I want to have a parade and just throw coins to people, it's my money, right? And you're like, Jesus, this story is awful. What are you doing here? Then he says this, are you envious or jealous because I'm generous. 
Are you envious because I'm jealous? The problem in the story isn't that the landowner gave the guy who showed up at 6 a.m. too little. He gave the guys that showed up at 5 p.m. too much. Or did he? I'm convinced Jesus is trying to teach his disciples a powerful lesson here about how life isn't fair and it's by design it's not fair and it's dangerous to live by comparisons because when you live by comparisons, you begin to feel that God has ripped you off when in fact he just has a different sort of purpose for your life. No less of a purpose, but just a different purpose. So years ago, um, I had a, a pastor friend uh, did an illustration that my wife and I literally talk about almost every month as we never, ever struggle with this in our lives. You know what I'm saying? Um, and I want to just unpack it with you because for us, it was really memorable. Um, he said this. He said, just imagine you had four young boys and it's a hot summer day and they're jumping on a trampoline. And I, of course, had no problem imagining this. This is my reality, right? Um, I have the four small boys that even when it's 35 degrees are out on the trampoline with their shirts off. And I think, wow, I don't even know what to say to that, right? But, but just imagine it's a hot summer day And there's a dad and he's at the kitchen sink and he's washing dishes and he looks out and he thinks, I just love my kids. I love my kids. I love my kids. I need to do something for my kids. I want to do something for my kids. I will give my kids ice cream, right? And he opens the freezer and there is one of those massive tubs of Moose Tracks ice cream that fell from heaven on a ray of light with a glory, you know, hallelujah chorus. And he pulls out the ice cream and the kids are, they're not expecting this. I mean, it's not snack time. It's just, you know, halfway between lunch and snack time. And he thinks, oh, I'm gonna, this is going to be awesome. And he says, I want to have a moment with each of my kids. So he calls the eldest kid in. And he says, my son, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. And you scoop an ice cream scoop for him. And you put it in a bowl. And he says, oh, blessed are you, father of mine. Right? <laughs> I mean, I, God could have placed me in any family. And he placed me with you. And you're the best dad I ever had. Right? That's kind of funny. You know, that's only. Yeah. It, 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 and he goes out and he's grinning from ear to ear. And I say, hey, send your younger brother in, you know, number two. So number two comes in, and he gets a scoop of ice cream, and same thing, Dad, you're the best, you're the best, you're the best, and, and goes back out. Kid number three comes in, same thing happens. And then, the, you know, then the baby comes in, kid number four, right? And he comes in. Now, he's expecting to get his scoop of ice cream, but, but let's just pretend in the story that the dad doesn't just give him one scoop of ice cream. He gives him two scoops of ice cream, big scoops of ice cream. And the kid walks out to see his brothers with his ice cream, you know. And of course, if you're the baby, you're not doing this, right? You're doing this. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, right? Some of you are like, I'm the youngest. I get that. Yeah. And, 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 and the brothers see the ice cream and look at their ice cream and see the ice cream and look at their ice cream and begin to whisper to one another. And, and all of a sudden, um, they don't feel blessed anymore. They feel ripped off, don't they? But it has nothing to do with what's in their bowl. It has everything to do with what's in the youngest brother's bowl. The problem isn't their bowl. What they got in their bowl was fantastic until they noticed what their younger brother got. And and now we have a problem. I'm so glad that the sort of thing disappears when we exit childhood, right? Just for fun, um, imagine that you've moved into your dream house. I mean, you started out of college, you got married young, bought a little fixer-upper, you fixed it up. 
you moved to another house, you lived there for 10 years, you got it fixed up, you made some money, and then, then one day the dream house, right? This is it, this is what we wanted, this is awesome. You move in, and it's for the first time in your marriage, you both can park inside the garage, and you're like, I, don't, I can't imagine we could live like any other way, and it was so awesome, and you know, in the kitchen and everything's just, it's just perfect, it's just, it's a perfect place to raise our family, and, and you get a call from some friends that you haven't seen for a while, you know, from college, and they're like, hey, we'd love to reconnect with you, and would you like to come over for dinner and bring the kids? Oh, that would be awesome, and you get in your car, and you're smiling, you're singing, listen to that song, Happy from Despicable Me, because life is good, right? And you're driving down the road, and you're talking about how great life is, and you just moved in maybe, you know, months ago, and everything's great, and you pull into their street, and you start to notice, like, these houses are bigger than your house, right? And, and you start to think back, and you think, boy, in college, they weren't really any smarter than we were, were they? No. And you know, maybe you're not saying this, but you're thinking. And you get to the door, and you start to realize that they have, like, not a two-stall garage where you can put your cars in, but they have, like, a three-stall garage, which, I mean, that obviously is better than a two-stall garage, because then you don't have to put the lawnmower in the basement and make it all smell all winter long, and this is better. And they come, right, they come to the door, and they open it up, and they say, oh, it's so great to see you. And you walk in their house, and their house is beautiful, right? I mean, your house is your dream house. All of a sudden, next to this house, it's just not as good a house, right? And then you get into the kitchen, and, and, and you start to look, and you see this, like, lower stainless steel drawer, and you're like, what's that? And they're like, oh, that's the tortilla chip warmer. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you're like, you mean to tell me you have an appliance that warms tortilla chips? That's its purpose in your house. And they said, yeah, oh, it's the best. And you're sitting there and you think, boy, you know, I really thought God had been good to us, but we don't have a tortilla chip warming drawer. <laughs> I don't even know where you would buy such a thing, right? And, and you get back in your car and you load the kids up and you drive home in silence. And you think, man... I thought we had it good, but I, I, guess, I guess God has ripped us off. See, when I focus on what's in my bowl, all is, all is well. But when my eyes start to wander to what other people have, that's, that's when jealousy rises. That's when we get in trouble. Um, Jesus finishes telling the story, which again is supposed to help us see things from God's perspective. And there's a question that hangs in the air and goes like this. Are you willing to trust a God who is not fair? Are you willing to trust a God who is not fair? The reality is that we will come to love God on these terms or not at all. We'll come to know him on these terms or not at all. So um, just as we wrap, how do we guard our hearts against jealousy? And as two decades of working with people, I just offer you a few suggestions. Uh, First goes like this. When jealousy rises, acknowledge that your problem is with God. Don't beat yourself up. It's a normal part of being human. But when jealousy arises, your problem isn't with the person of whom you're jealous. Your problem is with God. You think he has ripped you off. And there's something about having the guts to tell God that. God, I feel like I deserve more. I feel like you ripped me off. I feel like you love them more than you love me. It's not true, but, but just to verbalize it and he can take it. And that's often the first step to sort of unknotting that jealousy that's in your heart. Know that if you lean into jealousy or ignore jealousy, it begins to impact your relationships. Because if you allow jealousy to take root in your heart, it becomes impossible to really love people. And love stands in stark contrast to jealousy. So that's number one. Number two goes like this. Celebrate what God has placed in your bowl. Not in your sister-in-law's bowl or your neighbor's bowl or your friend's bowl, but what, what has God placed in your bowl? Maybe it starts for you with just, I'm healthy. And that's huge. 
I'm healthy and I can go out to dinner with friends and then I can digest the dinner, which I know is funny to say, but if you have ever had a stretch where you couldn't, that's a big deal, right? I have the ability to enjoy my life. In a few months, I'll be able to go and take a day and sit on the beach and just watch the waves. And that's a good thing. I can get there and that's a blessing and it's in my bowl. That's number two, celebrate what God has placed in your bowl. Here's the third one. This is the one that is a little counterintuitive. It goes like this. Develop a habit of celebrating out loud the people you're jealous of. And you're like, oh no, I'm never doing that. Just hear, hear me out. Say things like, you look great in that. Or congratulations on the new house. I'm so glad you got that business opportunity. It really couldn't have happened to, to a better guy. So you find the people who drive you crazy and get proactive with them. Publicly, out loud, you celebrate them. And here's the thing, you're not even being insecure, you're being honest, right? It's, something, it's an opportunity they have that you wish you had. Here's what many, many of us have found. Celebration breaks the power of jealousy. Celebration breaks the power of jealousy in a human heart. And so those are just three brief encouragements. So before we close, I need to ask you a couple of questions. How are things in your heart right now as you, as you entered this space? Is there someone you're jealous of? Right here, right now, maybe you woke up last night thinking about them and you're like, man, I wish I, wish I knew what to do with this. And just would you, would you get some time and confess that to God? And then would you take some time this week and maybe even today and just celebrate what's in your bowl? Maybe if you're a list person, make a list. You'd be surprised what's in your bowl. And we just ignore, it becomes our baseline. We don't think about it. And then the third thing, if it feels like something you're gonna need to do, would you approach that person that you're jealous of and just begin to celebrate, celebrate what they have? Again, it's not being dishonest. It's, it's actually being honest. And these friends are the habits that will guard your heart against jealousy. Would you stand? And I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. And we confess that whatever goodness you have shown us becomes sort of our expectation. And there's something in our hearts that always wants more. And I just, I pray that we would learn the beautiful art of contentment, that we would trust that what we have is a gift from you. And it is there to enable us to pursue the purpose you have for our lives. We thank you for the story Jesus told, and we thank you that it still resonates so deeply with us today. I pray for your grace and your peace to be on us all. In the matchless name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Everyone said, amen. Amen. Friends, go in peace. We'll see you next week.